I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, Man of the Year, something can all go wrong. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. There's more to life than a little money, you know. I'm the dude, so that's what you call me, you know? Uh... The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast, the podcast about the Coen brothers. I am your co-host, Chris Ayers. I'm Barbara Vandenberg. And I am Jason Kyle. All right, guys, today we are talking about Barton Fink, the Coen brothers' fourth film. I think on a subconscious level, I needed to talk about this. This is maybe the reason that I started the podcast. <laughs> uh, I didn't even realize it. It's right there in the title, Chris. Yeah, no... Hopefully you heard uh, John Goodman screaming at you. I'll show you the life of the mind. <laughs> Today we intend to show you the life of the mind if we figure out what that means. Look upon you. No guarantees. <laughs> so we'll get into the into the discussion of Barton Fink in just a minute. I wanted to bring up a couple things. Uh, one of them is that uh, my friend, Matt Luter, I asked him to create a Coen Brothers themed crossword puzzle. He puts out a, a crossword puzzle on his website every Tuesday. I've been doing for like a couple of years now. I've only been able to solve one of his puzzles all the way through without cheating. So they are challenging, but this is a Coen Brothers theme puzzle. So if you're a fan, you'll already have most of the seed entries. I think it'll be easy enough at least to get started on this one. Confession. Yeah. I cheated. You cheated? I cheated. Yeah. I didn't finish this one. I didn't, I didn't finish without cheating. Okay, what's what's cheating in a crossword puzzle? As somebody who does not do crossword puzzles, like what's cheating in a crossword puzzle? Like if you Google anything, is that cheating? I say yes. Yes, I'm, I'm told Googling is bad. Okay, so like if you're not entirely sure how to spell a name or something, if you Google that, that's cheating. Um, that's on the that's right on the fence. Yeah. Okay, so there are degrees of there are degrees of Google cheating mm -hmm. with cross. I'm not a crossword puzzle. But then when I, by the time I got to the right corner, I was like. F this noise. I'm going to finish this. I just cheated. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I got to do it. Now I got to try. I think the reason I'm not a crossword puzzle person is because I'm afraid I'll be bad at them and that'll mean I'm dumb. And so the way I avoid that is just by never trying, which I think explains a lot of my life. I'm pretty sure you're not dumb. I've known you long enough to know that you're not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> we see it. We'll see after we talk about Barton Fink and I still have no idea what it's about. Okay. Um, anyway, so if you just go to MatthewLuter.com, and Luter is spelled L-U-T-E-R, uh, you'll find that crossword puzzle under de December 2022. I'll also put it in the show notes, and I'll drop a link on our social media, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, challenging crossword puzzle, especially, you know, if, you, if you're the kind of person that does three or four puzzles a week, I would say add this one to your rotation. I think you would really enjoy Matt's puzzles. The other thing I wanted to briefly talk about is that Sight & Sound's uh, Top 100 poll came out. They put this out every 10 years. It's uh, uh, film critics, film professionals are, are polled, and they put out a cumulative top 100. Did you guys happen to see how many Coen Brothers films made the list? I did not. I did not. It's a big fat zero. <laughs> I think there were zero. I mean, they're in good company. I think there were also zero Spielberg movies on the list. Um, some real... Some real titans of the industry not represented in that list. So they're in good company. Yeah, I, when I heard what was number one and realized I had never heard of that movie before in my life, 
I, I feel like I'm too dumb for this list. <laughs> um, this made me feel a bit dumb too. I counted that I've seen 53 of them. I think, which I think is failing grade. But also, by the time I've caught up, to, they'll have changed the list again. So it's your work is never done. Uh, as someone who has a lot of, um, <laughs> you know, gaping holes in their filmography, you know, of, of things they haven't seen. Um, that's isn't really what I need to read to make me feel better about myself. Well, if, if we can take a second and talk about your uh, your gaping holes, um, <laughs> there, there are uh, two Kurosawa films on on this on this list. Uh, at number twenty seven, Samurai, and at number forty one, Rashomon. Rashomon. Yeah. So yeah. so there you go, Jason. When I get HBO back or uh, Campy, I'm uh, gonna. Uh, crank out some Kurosawa over winter break. All right. And in case this is your first time listening to the podcast, we make fun of Jason every episode for not having seen any Kurosawa films. I'm going to stop short of making fun of Jason because I think it's cool that he still has like all the Kurosawa films to watch for the first time. Like that's, that's, I'm a little bit jealous like that you get to see all of these films for the first time. I mean, if you think I'm cool, then I must be Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I would give a lot to be able to see Ron again for the first time, right? Like, that would be awesome. There are also some other films that we've talked about. Uh, the Apartment is on this list. Nice. At number 54. It's too low. 54 is too low. And then The Third Man. Where's The Third Man on here? That's one of Barbara's favorites. Your favorite film, right? It is my favorite film. It's uh, 63, which is frightfully low. But I guess if you're on the list at all, it's not too low. You know what I mean? Like, like getting on the list, period, seems to be the barrier to cross. But I suspect that Jerry Maguire is not on the list. <laughs> no, no, no Cameron Crowe. Uh, huge oversight. There are some populist things on the list. Like I was like a little surprised, but like not unpleasantly to see something like, you know, get out, which is incredibly recent. Yeah. Um, on the list. So they do have like parasites on the list, some recent, very popular crowd pleasing kind of films, but I was surprised that the total lack of Steven Spielberg or these like populist filmmakers that have sort of I don't know, revolutionized and changed popular cinema. Not to see some of them on the list was kind of weird. This tends to skew towards European because the uh, Sight and Sound is a British publication. So there aren't a lot of American films on here, which maybe uh, explains the lack of Coen Brothers. I would think that maybe Fargo or No, no Country for Old Men would have a shot at the top 100. But... Well, I mean, considering how popular the Coen Brothers have been at the Cannes Film Festival, like, you know, they the movie that we're going to talk about tonight, they had to like, didn't they have to change the rules how they yeah. um award films at Cannes because Barton Fink won too many of the big ones? Yeah, they're definitely like a a, a favorite of European critics, I think. So, I'm a little bit surprised none of them made it. It also helped that Roman Polanski was like have the jury that year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe they all split. Like it could be possible too that all the films kind of split the vote because everybody's got a favorite, different favorite Coen brother film. Like there's not one that naturally rises to the top in such a way that makes sense to be the one to include on the list necessarily, you know? Right. 18 films. That's, that does split it quite a bit. Yeah, I suspect after 10 years of campaigning, the Fablemans will make the list uh, in short <laughs> in short time. 
Um, I, I assume, did you see that, Jason? I know Barbara did. I did. I did see it. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. I'm I'm euphoric about it. I sat next to two women who did not know who John Ford was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and this, the, I, I have this, I got Cynthia, I have the Oscar screener, and so... Uh, I just keep popping it in to watch the last five minutes of that movie because nothing yeah. this entire year has brought me more joy than David Lynch playing John Ford. Nothing. <laughs> that may be a spoiler for some people because I did not know about that going in. I, my favorite kind of movie is like a two and a half hour setup for a joke, <laughs> which, <laughs> which this kind of is. That's what Tar is. Tar is exactly that. Yeah, oh my tar. God, Tar. Oh my God. I just saw that last week. I have not stopped losing my mind about Tar either. Yeah, the more I've thought about that, the more I love it. I love it desperately. I'll have to share with you both this article I, I read yesterday that um, actually it was Bill Goodykunt, uh from The Republic who shared it on his Facebook page. Howard is not discussing tar right. Oh, we're, we're not. We're not. And I think I know what article, article you're talking about. Like, it was sort of discussing tar as a ghost story. Yep. Because I turned to my friend. I was watching it with my friend. I turned to her halfway into the movie and I said is this a horror movie? <laughs> yeah. I just was like, am I wrong? Is this, is this, this is a horror movie. And by the end of the film, I'm like, oh, that, this was not what every, everybody's talking about it as being this sort of topical cancel, cancel culture think piece. And I'm like, it has nothing really to do with that. This is a, this is a ghost story. I totally agreed with it. Oh, I haven't even encountered that take on it. So I'm going to have to go back and, and look at that. Yeah, I'll share it with you uh, afterwards, Chris. It's it's pretty great. I kind of I love stealth horror movies because one of my favorite films from last year was Spencer, which I have no interest in the royal family or Princess Diana. Yeah. And it basically comes like Dickensian horror ghost story. I'm like, oh, like, this is great. I mean, I don't think it's – I mean, I think it shares – I think the comparison's not totally um, inappropriate to like draw a parallel between those two in that I think that Tar is about a woman – who is going through it and whose reality is sort of like collapsing around her as she's going through it. So she's, it's, I, I saw somebody describe it as an adaptation of the telltale heart. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. All right. I'm going to watch this again. <laughs> yeah, but no spoilers, no spoilers, a perfect ending. I cackled. Oh, I loved it. I love the ending. Yep. Yes. The ending was amazing. All right, to uh, bring it back to the Coen brothers, I have been neglecting to mention the posters I've been designing uh, for this project, something I conceived of a long time ago, but uh, I've been creating an alternative movie poster for every one of our episodes, for every Coen brothers film, and I just keep forgetting to promote it on the podcast, which is not helping not helping me. <laughs> and not helping you get great art on your walls, because these are some good posters. Thank you. Yes, they are. Uh, I was trying to uh, create them sort of conceptually, like a different concept for each one. So the the uh, Blood Simple one is like the, a pulp book cover. I came up with this idea for like a wrestling poster for this one, Bar Barton Fink versus Mad Mad Month. So this was this was a lot of fun. I think this is my favorite one so far that I've, that I've made for that. Um, if anybody wants to see these, obviously you can check on our Instagram. Uh, you can also search my Etsy store. If you search for Life of the Mind podcast, you'll find all those posters. They make great gifts for the holidays, guys. I think by the time this goes up, it'll be too late for shopping, unfortunately. But next for birthdays, makes <laughs> makes great belated Christmas presents, guys. <laughs> no, no, nothing screams Happy Valentine's Day like a Barton Fink wrestling poster, yeah. right? 
right? Maybe Blood Simple for Valentine's Day. <laughs> there I don't you know. go. All right, so we will be right back in a moment. We've got film critic Adam Naiman joining us to talk about Barton Fink, and we're really excited about that. All right, welcome back to the Life of the Mind. Today we are discussing Barton Fink, and to help us do that, we have author and film critic Adam Naiman. He's uh, the author behind a Coen Brothers coffee table book, also books on Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, and the film Showgirls. Welcome, Adam. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, considering that you wrote uh, a, a book on the Coen Brothers that we all own, by the way, um, I own your coffee table <laughs> book, and I don't even have a coffee table. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to put that in this Vancouver <laughs> apartment, but considering that you mu- you must have an intimate relationship with all the films to, to put out a book like that, but what is your relationship with Barton Fink? Uh, I mean, my relationship with Barton Fink is a film that, you know, I saw probably a couple years too young. I, I love the Simpsons joke where they're all driving into town to see an R-rated movie in the back of a pickup truck and they're all chanting Barton Fink, Barton Fink, which I... <laughs> I think was the Simpsons writing staff's way of acknowledging a a movie that obviously they respected, but also acknowledging the film's somewhat abject commercial performance. I mean, not that it was actually aimed at kids, right? But just the idea of a sort of profoundly unpopular movie with a kind of edgy reputation. So I was the kind of 12-year-old or 13-year-old who was seeing movies because of what critics wrote about them more than because they were normal within my peer group to see. And I think Barton Fink checks a lot of boxes on the sort of teen boy cinephile checklist. You know, it's moody, it's cerebral. To some extent, it's about a nerdy guy who thinks the world doesn't understand him and owes him something. They're sort of like demonic imagery and violence. And like in some ways, when you say all that about it, it, it makes it sound somewhat hackneyed or, or, or formulaic, if not for the Coens, just in general of a kind of teenage cinephilia, right? And I do think that there was something about the Coens in the early 90s where there was a bit of a badge of honor or a bit of a, you know, a bit of a proving ground aspect to watching their movies because they weren't particularly popular. So watching things like Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink were kind of a way of separating yourself from friends that had pedestrian taste and when you read critics on them even older people in their 30s and 40s had this same schoolyard mentality just a more sophisticated schoolyard you know and I think that the Coens in that period I periodized their career maybe not thematically or stylistically but reception wise everything up to and including the Hudsucker proxy is a period of like People really hate these assholes, basically. <laughs> right? And and that is in distinction to how acclaimed they are in certain niche areas. So both the highest compliment you could pay Barton Fink and the biggest insult you could give it is that it wins three prizes at Cannes. They have to change the rules <laughs> at Cannes because of Barton Fink. And so that, in a way, sums up what the appeal of it is. And also what, for some people, the major sticking points and why a show as popular as The Simpsons could have a whole joke built around the idea that no normal human beings would ever go see Barton Fink. And anyone going to see this R-rated movie, you know, with the edgy ad campaign, when they see it, they're going to be like, the fuck am I watching? 
you know, <laughs> and, and, and I don't know what you guys are going to say about your own experiences with, but we're all seemingly in the same ish age group. I always assume I'm the oldest person in any group that doesn't include like my parents. Right. But you know, <laughs> if we all came to that movie at some point in our teens, I mean, how many, how many kids are going in there? Like knowing about Clifford Odets, Right. So my relationship with that movie too is of a great gateway path opening where I was interested enough in the movie that even pre Wikipedia, I was like, I should look up Clifford Odets. Right. <laughs> and, and, and even just a statement like that, the difference between how that movie plays to people who know what they're talking about, who have some lived historical experience and knowledge versus people learning about like the group theater and Odets and left-wing playwrights and Hollywood through the movie it's an amazing generational difference. So I could never understand why all the adults I knew uh, hated Barton Fink so much. But I, you know, I thought it was great. Um, I came at it. I mean, it's not just for insufferable teenage boy cinephiles. It's for insufferable teenage girl cinephiles, too. Sure. Because I came at it very similarly when I was starting to get into film and, you know, being able to rent my own movies from Blockbuster or the library or what have you. When I was probably a little bit older, I was probably like 16. But this was like, I think my first favorite Coen Brothers film, the first one that I really attached myself to and stayed attached to for many, many years and, and was my favorite Coen Brothers film for quite a long time, um, in part because it's dark and inscrutable and unpopular and no normal person wants to watch it. Those were all selling points to, <laughs> to sort of an insufferable teenage cinephile. Uh, I distinctly remember when I got done with my paper, I would take one of the papers and just go straight to the arts and entertainment section. There's a giant one page ad in the Detroit Free Press for Barn Think, and I'm like 13 years old, I'm like going, and just listening to the accolades and all these critical noms, you know, critical things, and I'm like going, I don't know what this is, but I want to see this movie. And I didn't see it until like a couple years later when I got really into the Coens, and it just... um Maybe you want to learn more about old time Hollywood and between that, between this and like the early nineties, like Adam said, like these movies like Miller's Crossing and the Hudsucker Proxy reference a time in film that like Gen X is not familiar with. Um, so I would, it definitely made me want to go back and uh, study film like in even more depth just so I could get like, you know, half of the references that they're talking about. I'm going to admit to being a lot less sophisticated than you guys, because the the movie I was most excited about seeing in 91 was Terminator 2. <laughs> so uh, that was that was my uh, so anything with like Robocop, Terminator. That was that was what I was into. I didn't really get into the Coens until Fargo when I saw that in the theater. Um, and I didn't see Barton Fink until I was, I think, 30. So I just it was one of those holes in the, the filmography that I just hadn't that I hadn't filled in. Um, but I also think it has, every time I've watched it, uh, gained, uh, I've gained appreciation for it. And I think it's the one I relate to the most, um, but it also makes it somewhat less enjoyable because I think there's anxieties that I relate to. I think it brings up things about myself as a creative person that I don't necessarily like or that I struggle with. So it, for me, it has, it's, um, it's not, I don't enjoy it on the level of other films, but I appreciate it um, a lot. For me, it's like a root canal for the soul. I think. <laughs> so the sec- at least the second half. 
you know, I've had some root canals. Um, you can learn to enjoy them eventually once you kind of settle in. <laughs> um, once once the numbing has started, but um, I, I don't mean to. I don't mean that as a denigration of the film. I, I really do love it. Um, I'd also say that the sort of the the amount of references and influence you have to understand for this is quite a lot. The previous films we've talked about, you could sum up with the you know Dashiell Hammett or Looney Tunes cartoon. There's you could pick two or three things, and there's just so much in this film that I was still discovering. I, I'm afraid we're not even going to have time to cover everything. We pro- couldn't possibly cover all, all the references in history, but I mean, it's a mix of genres too. It's it's noir, it's horror, it's surrealism, it's comedy, and it's there's not necessarily a likable protagonist, which I think is a big turnoff um, for a lot of viewers. I, I defy you to watch that again and tell me that John Goodman is not likable. He's very charming and charismatic for uh, most of it until he's shooting people in the hallway and maybe ironically saluting Hitler. He is the common man, Chris. <laughs> no, I, I. you think he's the protagonist? I was referring to Barton Fink. Oh, no, I didn't but, say uh, he's a protagonist, but I, I think he's a likable. I think he's a likable character until the moment where he's um, terrifying. I mean, I think that it's interesting to start contextually with writer's block, right? Because writer's block is kind of the dramatic motor of the movie, and it's a stalled motor, you know? There's a guy who can't write, and that relates in some ways biographically to the Coens. I don't know if you guys covered this in the Miller's Crossing uh, episode, or if you guys have discussed Miller's Crossing, but that Miller's Crossing is so convoluted. in some ways Mm -hmm. that it occasions like a side project which uh deals thematically with that anxiety of not being able to finish a complicated narrative so you know that idea of of barton fink is like this doodle or it starts as a doodle in the margins of this other movie but i mean takes on a life of its own that i think in some ways is much closer to uh, maybe who the Coens actually were, what they were thinking about their position in the early 90s. Because Miller's Crossing is really an escape like into tropes and into total artificiality where the characters are very well drawn and Miller's Crossing is so intricate that it's almost it's almost maddening how intricate that movie is with all the doubles and the pairings and the, yes. and the, and the levels. But it's not really about them or the part that's about them the, the jewish anxiety in miller's crossing is you know sort of like you know a plot element right and Turturro's the link between the two movies because in both movies he is desperately like life or death fatalistically afraid of kind of his jewishness like the threat that jewishness causes john Turturro, even though Turturro's italian you know they have him play their like uber jew in in both movies but i think that you know, that idea of anxiety, uh, why are we making movies? Who are we when we make movies? What is our relationship to the industrial mode of making movies? What is our relationship to the artistic mode of making movies? I think, you know, that's the starting point uh, for it. And in some ways, why I think it is so in so hard to like or, or hard to connect to, because I think when they're really interrogating themselves as artists at this early point in their career, I mean, I'm kind of just speaking for myself here. I say this as a fan, like they're pretty callow, you know? I mean, who are they? They're kids who watched a lot of movies and pre Tarantino, that wasn't really the like going, (laughs) that wasn't really the going model for, for culture heroes, you know? You couldn't start your career like that. Well, or, or Spielberg did, but it was just such a different context of spectacle 
because I mean Spielberg was an encyclopedia too, but at least you got aliens or sharks out of it. <laughs> I mean the everybody can understand that. Yeah, the Coens have this kind of like rag and bone shop aesthetic and philosophy and in Blood Simple and 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 raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you guys talked about this to some extent. Like, what's the tension between? postmodernism in their work where everything is borrowed but it's synthesized into something original barton fink is exactly the movie that you make if you're worried that you can't thread the needle of your own cleverness and you're worried that you're repeating yourself and you're worried like what happens if we ever want to make money doing this you know so in all those ways i think it comes by its dislikability or its obnoxiousness pretty honestly because i think it really is them opening themselves up to that kind of, of 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 questioning you know and in the movie they're not coy about it i mean all that all that stuff about, you know no one wants to see a guy wrestling with his soul you know they know that uh and yet they do it anyway right and i i mean that self-awareness and self-interrogation i think is what makes barton fink tolerable it doesn't get lost up its own ass so to speak <laughs> it's not it you know I, I saw some critics discussing it as being like their most nihilistic work and I disagreed with that um, because I think they're just doing so much self interrogation and self artistic interrogation that's kind of painful to watch sometimes I don't think that makes it nihilistic just because it's uncomfortable though I had assumed that the this was their most personal film. As you were saying, Adam, like I assume a lot of that, their anxieties went into this, but there's always, they'll, they'll always um, they go against what you, your assumption or they're no, notoriously difficult or obtuse when asked to explain their work. But um, I forget which one of the brothers this is, but the, it says, they say, Barton Fink is very far from own, our own experience. Our life in Hollywood have been particularly easy. So I think they're just talking about their life within the studio system. But now they're starting to get deeper into the studio system and, and probably experiencing some of those anxieties. Well, it prefigures in a weird way. It's like a prophecy of the Hudsucker Proxy, where they did get too deep into the studio mechanism, and they're working with Joel Silver, who, way more than you know the people they'd worked with at Circle Films and stuff, really was kind of obliging them. You know, like you can imagine Joel Silver being like, "I need a Joel and Ethan Cohen voice for this movie." <laughs> you know, I need that Joel and Ethan Cohen feeling, which of course they give it to him by nature of being those guys right i mean yeah they're inscrutable in terms of what they say about their movies i mean i've read that same quote but in that sense they're also kind of giving something away because just because it doesn't replicate their experience doesn't mean it isn't true and personal to their anxieties right about mm -hmm. what's going right. to happen and i love the idea too i mean if you've read my, my my book or skimmed it or even just in while well, it's been holding something up in your apartment you know you glanced <laughs> at a page or two um <laughs> You know, repetition, compulsion, and circularity to me is the only real way to understand the the Coens. It's the entry point into their work because, you know, in Raising Arizona, they talk about recidivism and repeat offenderdom. You know, mm -hmm. these are guys who repeat themselves, not for a lack of anything new to say, but to keep trying to find different surface variations on it. This movie is just like a vortex down into a drain of circularity. And it's yeah. so anxious about what that means. If he can only write the one play, it ain't late, it's early. You know, the fishmonger, if he can only write the one play, you know, is this his masterpiece? <laughs> 
and he kind of has to accept that this is what he has put out into the world this is that barton fink feeling and everything else is going to be a copy you know or is it i'm using the word in its literal meaning here you know or is his work retarded you know is he unable to develop or grow past that it's exactly what is on their minds stuck writing miller's crossing four films into a very acclaimed career where they have all the freedoms by the way that no director would have had in the 1930s because of tourism as a as a marketing tool maybe as a critical concept it's there the idea that like a movie is sold by a director and a writer director is you know the the reason people see a movie that doesn't exist in the that period and they know that is why i think they're dealing so anachronistically projecting their 80s independent experience into the assembly line you know neil gabler studio 30s and it's just such a delirious mix it seems like such a curse to have an early success like to think you've peaked on your first work and you know a lot of people have read a great debut novel and have trouble the anxiety of trying to follow that up um so you guys all except for me you guys all make your living writing to some extent don't you yes sir Sure. Yeah. <laughs> On a good day. Yes, I write right. for money, yes. <laughs> yeah. I I don't, so I, don't, I mean, I've tried writing fiction. not not very good at it, but... I mean, Barbara, you're currently writing fiction. I'm also you? not very good at it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I put, I Sorry, the other day I posted a Barton Fink gif on your your tweet about I'm I getting back into writing, and I want to apologize no, I, for that. I, I noticed. That, I uh, noticed. It didn't escape my attention. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to, um... I kept looking when I, I, I didn't realize I had, I deleted my Twitter account um, still because uh, I had finished like our big event calendar yesterday and I was going to post a gif of barfing dancing at the USO because that's pretty much how I feel whenever I finish that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just go around my block and just go, you know, I write. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you can all relate to staring at the blank page and and the, the that feeling of uh, of worthlessness when you can't make it happen right in the in the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, they do an incredible job of I think of capturing that sort of like uh, I don't know, just like trapped despair of the blank page when nothing will come, like visually, auditorially, just like that room that he is stuck in that hotel room that is disintegrating around him is sort of what it feels like in your soul when you can't make the words come so they did a great job with that they they have they have these gags sometimes about anxiety of influence which is you know i think such a running theme i mean i think of barton fink and lewin davis as soul brother mm. movies in some ways, because Lewin Davis's problem is he can't write. He doesn't have to. He inhabits folk songs, and the difference between him and Bob Dylan is he can't write one, right? Or, oh, brother, where art thou? Everyone sings these songs that are just part of the American cultural fabric and mosaic, but, I mean, they're all covers. You know, the Coens have this really interesting relationship to old material. In Blood Simple, when they play same old song, I mean, that's their theme song. You know, mm-hmm. that's their idea, the circularity of culture. And so with Barton, I mean, visually, yeah, the page is blank and it's agonized, but it's never a blank page. It's the idea that his play already exists. And right. so what's he going to what's he going to do? It's never blank. And that's why they do the, one of the funniest jokes is when he's he realizes that he's like turning the Bible into his play, <laughs> or turning his play into the into the Bible, you know, and 
there's such arrogance there, but there's also such humility because like, how is there originality in any kind of tradition? You know, when the Coens did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? They're like based on the Odyssey by Homer. I laugh out loud every time I read that credit because I'm like, so is everything. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, so, so. So, I mean, Barton's problem in some ways is that he's been praised to the skies for this play that's like in a in a very heroic, you know, left wing, you know, mode. And uh, it's like he said it all already and he said it all to the point where he doesn't want to hear John Goodman's stories because he's worried in some way that like, you know, those are going to be better than the ones he's 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 told. I find the idea of someone paralyzed by success and only able to rewrite his own play so that, I mean, I'm laughing out loud thinking of it. I try not to laugh on podcasts, but like at the end, when you hear the tiny little bit of his finished script and they're like, we'll hear from that crazy wrestler again. And I don't mean on a postcard. And, you know, he's just, he's completely absurdly cannibalized his own, his, his own play. Um, It gets at a very particular kind of despair that the only thing worse than having no ideas is having to live up to the one idea that has fooled people into thinking and maybe fooled yourself into thinking you're some kind of great writer. And that's where the movie's pretty unsparing towards old Barton because much like Lewin Davis, you really have an interesting debate in this movie about whether he's any good. Yeah. You never actually see what he writes. It's all, he becomes like this maniacal, like egomaniac once he finishes the screenplay, but we don't get to see what he wrote. Never get to see what he writes, but the little bit that we see Right. And then the extent to which you realize as a viewer, there's references again to Odette's and to other to other playwrights of the, of, of the period, you know. But the question of whether he's any good is hard because whose judgment in this movie can you possibly trust? Well, yeah, he's getting praised at the beginning of the film by these society people in particular. Like the only people that you see like really, really praising his work are all phonies, right? Like you've got these society assholes at the beginning who are just totally insufferable and unbearable, um, who are just like sniggering, uh, you know, across their champagne at one another at the jokes they're making. And then you've got, you know, the, the studio heads who, you know, wouldn't know art from the hole from a hole in the ground and these are the people who are getting to make creative decisions and so everybody who's praising him throughout the entire film is full of shit and even even mayhew doesn't like him or at least that's what Judy davis says (laughs) like he thinks you're washed up or something along those lines i specifically had that experience where i realized the person that hired me the person that gave me validation was kind of an idiot and had no idea what i did or or (laughs) Well, I was like, why did you hire me for this? You know, this is what you wanted. So I, I related to that. But like uh, but like Lewin Davis, he requires validation, right? There's that line in Lewin Davis, you know, where they keep saying, I thought music was supposed to be a joyful expression of the soul. And he's like, no, it's how I pay my rent, you know? I mean, with, <laughs> I mean, with Barton, he's so at the beginning so dismissive of the idea that he's doing this for money but he gets on that first plane to los angeles right and he he kind of talks down the idea of critical acclaim or talks to but i mean that's all he's interested in i mean he 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 really is sort of like you know the the tree falling in the forest i mean if he wrote this and no one was there to read it or no one was there to watch it he couldn't get off on it he couldn't be superior about it he couldn't be arrogant about it even when he's being talked down to by the studio bosses at least what he's written is kind of the center of attention right Mm -hmm. Uh, you get you, you you know you get the feeling that he's not writing to express something he's writing in some ways to be praised 
Right. Well, and he, he positions himself as this like champion of the working class, the champion of the working man, but he's play acting at being totally a working man. Like he's in this shitty hotel room because he chooses to be, you know, they offer to put him in a nicer hotel. He's like, no, 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 no. I need to be with my people, but they're not his people. Cause he could, he's just, I think John Goodman at some point calls him a tourist. Right. Yeah. And so sorry. And, and Goodman, the casting is amazing because that's Goodman right in the sweet spot of Roseanne. Right. Yeah. where he really is like America's blue collar dad and he plays a character who really you think Barton Fink's a pretty easy movie ideologically you think there's a very simple movie about an authentic you know larger than life hail fellow well met and the obnoxious asshole you know siphoning his experience but then it becomes day of the locust it's about like <laughs> working class fascism and a kind of sociopathic eruption of that character, which Goodman totally sells, by the way. Like, Charlie's terrifying. Charlie is terrifying at the end of that, at, at, at the end of that movie when he becomes kind of fiery and demonic. But he's not just more powerful than Barton. I mean, he's not sympathetic at that point. Not, not, not to me, whatever he represents, however you read that transformation. So the Coens are pretty smart. Because just making a movie about how Barton condescends to and doesn't understand his, his you know, salt-of-the-earth neighbor would be a very boring movie. That transformation that Charlie makes is, I think, the part of the key to the whole thing. One of the reasons I think it's a sociologically acute movie instead of just an obvious exercise in, in, in sympathy. And also why it's such brilliant casting, because, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in that sweet spot where I thought John Goodman was my second dad, right? Like, I think a lot of people of our generation sort of think of him as this, like, reliable, fatherly, working class figure. And so as a teenager watching this movie for the first time to see uh, America's dad, John Goodman, turn on a dime into, I don't know, the devil, maybe? I'm not sure. was of sort of violent revelation i didn't know he could do that <laughs> wasn't expecting it my soul wasn't braced for it can imagine what it was like i mean i wasn't old enough to see it when it came out but i can imagine what that was like for people in the throes of roseanne at the time seeing john goodman like that how do you guys um process or understand the turn basically after the after barton goes to bed with uh, audrey and wakes up it it's it the camera pans across to the bathroom and then tracks down the plug hole. And I've seen people, I think that's a sexual metaphor as, as obvious as the train going into the tunnel. Uh, for me, it's more like we're in a sort of a, it, down the rabbit hole or through the looking glass. Once you go into that hole that it's like transformed into a dark fantasy or anxiety dream. I'm not sure if there's a right answer for that, but I'm, I'm curious about how you guys understand that. And the, the, the turn of Charlie into madman month and that, that really terrifying hallway scene. I mean, what I what I think, among other things, is that this movie is very good about not setting up a literal figurative binary. This is one of their only movies that's Lynchian, you know, which doesn't mean that it copies David Lynch or that it's under the direct influence of Lynch. But I mean, usually with the Coens, they, they have lots and lots of dream scenes, as I'm sure you guys have sort of talked about. But those dream scenes, they have a subconscious reality for the dreamer, but the world of the movie doesn't bleed in or out of them. Right. And they have lots of movies where people act in weird ways and there's little coincidences. But I mean, The Big Lebowski is sort of a movie where we would sort of argue it's not like anything can happen. 
right? I mean, Barton Fink is a movie where the inner and outer worlds bleed together. The walls aren't very thick. They don't usually do this. You know, their movies are not like that typically. So that moment that you cite is one of slippage or drainage or whatever you want to call it. And it, yeah, it becomes very hard to tell how literally we're supposed to take lots of things, including Charlie's transformation. But I see him as this pent up figure where when you condescend enough and don't listen enough and impose these positive uh, feelings of, you know, he's a, he's, he's a decent salt of the earth type, you know, you condescend to it enough, you get this outpouring of just murderous rage. You know, that's the riot at the end of Day of the Locust is all directed towards Hollywood, towards the false promises, the false Babylon of Hollywood. But but Charlie also, I, I forget if it's Jeffrey Adams who argued this, someone argued about him that he also sort of mythologically is like Barton's protector, you know? I mean, not that he's a Nazi, but that actually he's the one who, who mutilates the German and the Italian detective. And that in some ways he's the American unconscious swooping in to deliver the Jew on the home front from the danger of the Axis powers. You know, he very much, he frees Barton. You know, he's, he might not be being nice anymore, but he's like his own private golem or his own private, you know, protector or something. But nevertheless, terrifying. And I guess what I find terrifying about Charlie is how American he is. In a movie that is so conscious of World War II, and which uses the front as a structuring absence. You guys notice the clapboard on his little movie is the date of Pearl Harbor. When the German wrestler keeps yeah. saying, I'll destroy you, I'll destroy you, I'll destroy you. <laughs> I mean, they're they're dealing with with the subconscious of Jews at home. They're dealing with what people aren't seeing happening over in Europe. And they're doing it all pretty effortlessly, but it's there. So if you ask how I read Charlie's turn, whether they're sort of arguing that, you know, America's powerful and infantile or that it has a secret fascist heart that's expressed in proletarian terms, which would make it a pretty reactionary movie. And I don't know if we want to argue with the politics of Barton Fink, but a lot of people hate its politics. And the, the anti-left-wing playwright aspect is why people like Rosenbaum and Hoberman, all those American film critics, they despise this movie because they think that the Coens are mocking left-wing left-wing writers they're saying that Clifford Odette's a phony right so it's it's uh, it's it's complicated well I mean it's interesting too the I mean I I think that's too simple I, I I don't agree with that reading and I think that would be like a simplistic reading of what he's doing with Odette's here but I think it's also interesting that they've got you know this sort of William Faulkner very obvious William Faulkner stand-in with sure. Mayhew you know also a writer I would think I don't know for sure, but I would have to think that the Coen brothers admire, have read extensively, have been influenced by. They share a lot of tonal DNA with William Faulkner, like artists who can both be incredibly oppressively dark and and also um, darkly hilarious at the same time. I mean, they've worked with Cormac McCarthy, who is who has himself said he is an acolyte of William Faulkner's. I mean, I, I've also, when I was an insufferable teenager, William Faulkner was my favorite writer. So like, this was all in my DNA. <laughs> I thought he was still your favorite writer. I 
don't I feel like an asshole if I say that though. I don't know who's my favorite writer anymore, to be honest. Um, but you know, they're also really taking the piss out of this William Faulkner ass character. Um which I don't think that's their way of saying that William Faulkner was a phony. I think they're grappling. Yeah. No, but they're dealing with Faulkner and, and Odette's, their stand-ins, after their literary genius is diminished by Hollywood. Yes, yes. Right? So I think there's some commentary in the film that Hollywood, these people went there voluntarily with either good or mercenary intentions and ended up spit out by a machine run in some ways by idiots. Yeah. Because the least sympathetic character in the entire movie is the studio head. Mm-hmm. Who's, you know, a little mix of mayor and... and and, and, you know, various other little Martinet, you know, studio dictators of the period who truly, as played by Michael Lerner, is hateful. You know, like, it's a hateful performance. He's the only one who got an Oscar nomination, which I think is interesting. I think the Academy liked to think that they were skewering themselves. But I don't think he's even, like, one of the three best performances in the movie, as good as he <laughs> is. He doesn't make my personal list. I mean, Goodman's the best. I didn't but, realize he got an Oscar nomination for that. Yeah, he nominated nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But, you know, the idea that Faulkner or Odette's or even the woman behind Faulkner and Odette's, this mythical, because that's a riff on half-truth that, you know, some of Faulkner's works were, you know, supposedly influenced by his secretary. Like, they grab any bit of lore they can. Yeah. To, well, I mean, to, he had an affair. He had an affair with... Um, Howard Hawks he he worked with Howard Hawks in Hollywood and did a couple of movies with him and was going to be basically his his writing filmmaking yep. partner but that fell through and it was his secretary I believe that he had um a long standing and a long standing affair with um but yeah I mean yeah they're pulling little bits and pieces out of real life but he was kind of I don't know I think a bit of a ridiculous figure in Hollywood or a lot of a ridiculous figure in Hollywood and it wasn't until after he failed out of Hollywood, went back home, long after the fact became sort of an elder statesman of American literature when he came back and won, I believe, the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize. But he, you know, it was sort of, at the time, not a successful stint in Hollywood. And he was, I think, artistically, from the Coen brothers' perspective, probably diminished by it. Yeah, and and diminished because, in a way, the instincts of people like the studio head are so minuscule and petty and cunning, but also not wrong. You know, I mean, when when Fink gets dressed down at the end and told you're overthinking this, I don't know that the Coens mean for us to disagree. I mean, they're ambivalent, you know. It's it's complicated as to what you're supposed... I mean, not that movies have to have a rooting interest, but I mean, what as a viewer are you pulling for in that scene at the end? When Barton is pulled onto the carpet and basically told... People want simple, engaging melodrama. Why can't you give it to them? Uh, hard to know which side of that we're supposed to come down on. What it reminds me of is what you've said. This movie is sort of like the cousin to Inside Lewin Davis or like related to Inside Lewin Davis is that scene with F. Murray Abraham sure. where he watches where he watches him. Oscar Isaac give this beautiful, like just soul stirring performance of the song and says, I don't see any money here. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not wrong. He's not. It hurts and it sucks and you don't like it. But damn it, he's not wrong. <laughs> but with with Lou and Davis and even thinking about that scene 
And I assure you, I'm a functional human being. But even thinking about that scene makes me want to cry when I think about the song he chooses, which is about this death in childbirth, right? The death of Queen Jane. And he's totally imagining this child who was born, who he's not going to be in their life, you know, the abortion that ended up not having. So the idea that he plays something literally and figuratively from inside Lewin Davis in that moment, the fact that he's told there's not a lot of money here is a brutal punchline, but it's so moving that he does pull something out of himself. With Barton, I think what makes Barton kind of hateful in the end is he can't. Mm -hmm. He can't pull something out of himself. He can cannibalize his own masterpiece, which may or may not have kind of been crappy to begin with, and which was just cosplay in the first place, because he's not those characters in Arise and Sing. Well, no, what, what's the play called? It's called Ruined Bear Choirs. You know, These are all jokes about group theater and you know, left-wing playwriting and Odette's, they're very, very nasty jokes the Coens are making about the vocabulary and language of plays like that. And, I, I, and people can't tell if they're making fun of the form and the politics or if they're saying that Odette's by the end was copying himself and it wasn't connected to anything true. You know, With Barton, you never get a sense of what's inside him. Or what's inside him sure as hell is not solidarity with the common man. You know, what's inside him is rage and contempt and narcissism, but it's not what he writes about. He can't pull something honestly out of himself, which is why I think it's kind of heroic how little the Coens make it possible to like him. Even though, yeah, anyone who has sat in front of a blank page can empathize. Um or, or sympathize. I, I was, this may be a bit of a stretch, but I, last week I got to see To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the version written by Aaron Sorkin. And I'm listening to this, <laughs> I'm listening to this, ver, um, this interview with Aaron Sorkin after I watch it. And just him positioning himself as this Barn Fink type man of the people um, who, liberal left wing writer who does a really good play, goes to Hollywood for 10 years, makes um, some crappy thrillers and the American president, and then keeps repeating himself over and over again on television with the West Wing. (laughs) And, um, but just listening to him, just in his interviews, feels so pompous about what he's doing. Um, how he's like the hero of the liberal party uh, of the United States. And, um, and this interview was like right in like the last throes of the Trump, uh, um, administration, but it just is like, he, he, he caught, I'm thinking like you calling yourself like this guy, but this person of the common people, but you write about presidents and, CEOs of um, upstart companies and baseball managers. Um, And it isn't like, but at the same time, and I was like moved by this play that he wrote by, by his adaptation of Harper Lee's novel too. Like where I'm like, like it was seemed like it was the most sincere thing he had written, even though it's like this adaptation of a beloved novel. I, I, uh, just hearing you guys talk about it, you think of this Aaron Sorkin rabble hole I've been down and how the parallels to his career and Parnfink's trajectory in the movie seem somewhat similar. 
I was going to try and say, like, if the Coens had no real sense of humor, couldn't use a camera, they'd be Aaron Sorkin. But there's too many steps <laughs> to turn them in. There's too many. There's too many steps to turn them into Aaron Sorkin. But the Sorkins of the world are absolutely, to some extent, what a movie like Barton Fink has in the in the crosshairs a little yeah. bit, right? That disingen that that disingenuous uh, that disingenuous populism, and I mean Sorkin must have been giving that interview around the time of his Chicago 7 movie, which is an affront to God and history. Yeah. I mean, just appalling. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an appalling movie that ends with the names of the American war dead being read into the register as if that's what any of the protests were about. I mean, it's, 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 it's vile, you know? And I think the Coens have always been pretty good at dealing with history with a kind of grin, which is why a movie like Barton Fink succeeds because it won't go on the record and say, this is exactly that person. You know, there's all sorts of line blurring and imagining, which serves them very well that they can't quite be nailed down to because, you know, we live in this time now where people think Lydia Tarr is a real person. <laughs> you know, they, Vox, Vox has to do like an explainer that Lydia Tarr is not real. You know, I, I feel like Barton Fink is a great a great movie for having to make people look up who it's about, but it, there's also plausible deniability because they can come out and say, "But that's not who it's about." You know, just because Mayhew has a white mustache and is a Southern gentleman alcoholic with a a, a secretary, he's not William Faulkner. You're projecting. <laughs> you know, they're 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 very they're 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 very smart that way. I mean, a question I have for you guys because you, you were watching it to prepare or talking about it is, you know, like, do you guys find the movie funny or do you find it enervating? Like, it's a long time. Of a, it's a long sit of a movie working in the way that it does. It's one of those movies for me like Miller's Crossing where it's brilliant. You know, like only brilliant people could make this movie. But it there's an exhausting factor to it as well. And I like this movie a lot. I've written about it. You know, I like talking about it. How good a time is it? Because I think that's a mixed answer. I think it's funny. I think it's really funny. So I, I, I might just be a broken person that's entirely possible but i find it incredibly darkly humorous and the performances are so energetic and entertaining like even when john Turturro is like really losing it and has become a, a very on his face unlikable person there is a comedic energy to his to the physicality of his performance john goodman i think is just hypnotic um, in this role and you know all of the side supporting characters um, Tony Shalhoub is hilarious like I just I find it incredibly darkly comedic I don't find it psychically overwhelming or draining um, weirdly I had a harder time with Miller's Crossing even though I think Miller's Crossing is more stuffed and full of obvious gags um, I find keeping up with Miller's Crossing, more exhausting than v vibing um, with the awfulness of Barton Fink. For me, it's like two different movies up until the turn. And it happens when he goes to watch the dailies of, of the wrestling picture for the first time. And that's when his anxiety really starts to set in. I think the first half of this movie is brilliant. I think it's a, I think it's a very funny comedy. I think there's a lot packed into that. But I really do have the anxiety through the second half. 
um, where it just it feels like a nightmare, like a Kafka-esque nightmare for the second half until he gets a little bit of a little reprieve at the end when he's sitting on the beach. And there's maybe a glimmer of hope that he can come through this and process this experience and uh, maybe turn this into art. That's that's my hope for it. But for it's like this, it it's almost broken exactly in half for me how much I enjoy it or how I enjoy it. I think you're right that, that it's two different vibes. Like after that turn in the middle, it turns into sort of a, a, a different, darker, more twisted David Lynchian sort of experience where I'm not quite sure if what I'm watching is real in any given moment or what exactly it's supposed to mean and it changes based on my mood when I'm watching it. But I, I think that's what I find so um, entertaining and interesting about it and why I'm able to rewatch it so many times, even though I can see that it's uncomfortable, <laughs> is that it's it's a little puzzle box. My It's not literally a puzzle where I'm trying to find the key to fit the pieces together, but in that David Lynchian sort of like nightmare escape kind of way, where my experience of it feels fresh every single time I watch it. Yeah, and yeah, for it's my experiences like Barbara's. In fact, I I led the discussion on Miller's Crossing the last episode, and when I watch it, it, it I I love that movie. It's a handsome looking movie, but at times it feels empty and soulless. Whereas, um, with this movie, watching it for again like the upteenth time, I'm laughing where hysterically and i am just involved and then right again like chris too i am then generally full of dread um and just when he just realizes he has he has to listen he, he's not who he thinks he is like john goodman is this manifestation is like you are not who you say you are and um or who you think you are. And it's a hard truth that it's a hard and it's anxiety. And I, and I feel that a lot, <laughs> um, both personally and professionally. So I, um, I, I loved it. I think it's funny and scary and smart all at the same time it is never, never born to watch this movie. I want to talk a little bit about the opening scene because this really struck me on this last rewatch. And we talked about how like that first 10 minutes of Raising Arizona is like this perfect little 10 minute movie at the beginning of this. Um, there's, I, I realized there's so much packed into the first five minutes of Barton Fink because the first thing you see is a behind uh, a backstage rope descending. You're not sure exactly what function it's, it's, it's um, serving, but there's, it's pulled by this grizzled, grizzled old stagehand. So the first guy you see is, is like literally a common man, a working class guy. Um, and then you hear the words being spoken from the stage, you hear the dialogue and it pans over to Barton, who's also backstage, but he's wearing a, a tuxedo. So there's already this contrast of the role of the writer and the class distinction. And Barton is the only person who's backstage. He gets to come out and take a bow with the actors. The, all the, all the, all the other multiple people who are back there who make a the play production, making costumes and sets and, you know, lighting, those people aren't recognized. The only, the adoration is only for the writer which, you know, gives him that big head. And you then you cut to this um, this restaurant scene where he's sitting there with all these upper-class people. Uh, and he's, like, a little bit effusive about receiving praise from the newspaper, but he kind of loves it. So I'm just, I'm curious about, like, if the, what class does Barton belong to? Is there enough information that we understand what his life has been, like where his background is? Where did he go to school? 
I mean, I think we're meant to take the narrative of his play as either wish fulfillment, you know, or some form of self-representation where it's like he transcends his origins, you know? That's all we really learn about Bear Ruin Choirs is it's about someone rising above his station and everyone's grateful to see him go, right? (laughs) You know, they're grateful to see him go and they're like, maybe we'll get a postcard from him someday. So I always took the idea that he's fantasizing about getting up, out, and above where he came from while using where he came from as the material for his plays. You know, that's his authenticity. And then by the transitive property, he's going to take that authenticity out west to Los Angeles and imbue Los Angeles with some of that East Coast urban authenticity that is like both his birthright and kind of now his his metier, like now his his shtick. But this is what I meant before, where because we only see the end of the play, no idea whether the play is any good. Mm-hmm. And what the play looks like is it looks like a bad parody of left-wing theater with like fishmongers and people in undershirts and, you know, this like call to solidarity and action, which is totally disingenuous. You know, the I, I, I have a couple of little girls, both under six, and when I would get up to feed them sometimes at three or four, I'd hold them in the dark, I'd look outside, I'd say, it ain't late, it's early. You know, like that line, that, that, that line like tells you everything you need to know about Barton because it's like a cliche raised to the level of holy writ, you know, like the plays are totally humorless. I think that that is what is supposed to be conveyed more than anything is that he's not funny, you know, and uh, so when you ask about that opening and of course the opening quotes nothing less than Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane has that amazing shot at Susan Kane's opera performance where you go up, 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 and the two stagehands are the ones looking down, like in the idea that they've watched every opera ever from running the curtains, mm-hmm. and they look at each other, and they're like, this sucks. You yeah. know? So it's I feel... written about them. It's, uh, you know, ostensibly it's written about them, but it's it's not genuine. Yeah, it's written about them, not genuine. So I, I, I take that opening and the quote of Citizen Kane as very telling, right? you know, in terms of how good we're supposed to think Barton's play is. Um, the, so there's a quote from Odette's, and I'm not sure what the entire context was, but he says, great audiences are waiting now to have their own experience explained and interpreted for them. And it's just the most arrogant thing you could possibly, and there's a little bit of that Sorkin arrogance too, you know, that, that let's, let's explain, let's explain the working class to, to you guys. Um, and I know that's the, you know, Barton is partially based on Odette's, but that's, they don't say it exactly that arrogantly out of Barton's mouth, but it's pretty close. Well, I mean, you get to the Charlie scenes, and I love how strength functions in those scenes. I don't know if anyone wants to talk about those different ideas of strength, but like the idea that Charlie can have this guy on the floor in <laughs> two seconds, you know, mm-hmm. and that he's so much stronger, he's so much more substantial. But he defers out of like intellectual insecurity, which is very genial at first. But the more you watch the movie and you watch Goodman's performance, I always see because Goodman is such a brilliant actor. I think sometimes I think he's one of the like 10 or 15 greatest American movie actors of all time. If I could give anybody, if they like gave me an Oscar that I could just give to an actor who I think needs one, he's like in that he would maybe he's number one. He he's 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 incredible and like the little notes he hits in those scenes, total deference and support of Barton and there's just a tiny bit of mockery in there, mm-hmm. and it's the mockery that then spills over into the demonic 
Charlie, who may be an American fascist or maybe sarcastically saying Heil Hitler because he's just killed a German or whatever in a very heroic soldier way. But, you know, those scenes, the way strength works, because, you know, those are the scenes, the, the quote that Chris just used, where Barton is at his most Odetsian, right? Where he's like, I need to explain this to you. I need to process this experience for you. You could tell me what your experience is, but I already know them. And, you know, I struggle to find the language for them. And this is what weighs upon my head. And whether Charlie is genuinely cowed by this superiority or he is totally humoring him in a contemptuous way is wide open. But boy, I think he puts a little sting on the wrestling move, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. He yeah, yeah. likes flipping him over and, and pinning him. I, I always thought Charlie was passive aggressive at one point. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a touch of, there's a touch of mockery too. He like flips him over while wrestling. He's like, well, usually there's a little more squirming than that, but yeah, you know, I mean, he knows what he's doing and he knows he's going to flip him over in two seconds. I mean, there is, I, I t- totally see all throughout that hint of, of mockery and knowingness in Charlie. But also loneliness. Yeah. Right. And there's a like sense authentic that... connection there. Authentic connection and a feeling of not being heard, which is why Barton is such a failure, right? Because really he's supposed to voice these concerns. It's just those concerns of voice, Barton won't let them be ugly mm-hmm. because his sense of decorum and narcissism doesn't let him imagine anything but a heroic, noble, <laughs> suffering working class instead of writing a character like Charlie, who's fucking insane. Well, and he like flinches at like there are little things where he flinches when, you know, Charlie is just sort of like an unsophisticated like when he flips up his his tie and there's the pornographic oh, image on the back of his tie with a naked lady and John it's hilarious and it's charming and John Turturro was like, "Oh, oh, oh, I can't, I can't." It just sort of like <laughs> just sort of like looks away because it's it's so um gauche the naked lady on the back of your tie, but like but there are those readings because the Coens love the mind-body split. You know, they love this Cartesian idea. And I do love the idea that in some ways Charlie does what Barton can only imagine. And whether that's in the realm of physical strength or sexual potency, because, you know, there's obviously metaphorical undertone to Charlie being a ladies man and a serial killer and being possibly the author of all these decapitations, especially Mm -hmm. the one that's, you know, framed so sexually. Right. I mean, you know, on top of everything, they make it sort of seem like Barton's probably a shitty lover or or impotent. Like they really get all their self-loathing out of of Turturro. And, you know, the other thing that's lurking in so many Cohen movies, it's in Lewin Davis, it's hugely in Serious Man. And if you guys just did Miller's Crossing, I'm sure you did the whole nine yards on this. There's massive homoeroticism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think. Massive. Yeah, we got... Quite a bit into right? that with Notice yeah. Crossing. With Notice Crossing, but also, but also Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through the idea of the, of the wrestling, right? Right. It's just like, it's like we're, we're men, we wrestled. Like, did you have sex? No, we're men, we wrestled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, 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 I, exactly. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up watching professional wrestling when I was sure when I was a kid. And it's very sexually confusing. <laughs> these like these beefcake men with like no body hair. They're like very, very feminized, smashing their bodies against each other. It's It's a very confusing thing. Well, and the Coens love grotesque wrestler types. They just never put them quite at the center of the movie. But you think how many of their films have outsized 
lumbering, lurching grotesques. You know, you have the demon biker, the apocalypse, various henchmen in Miller's Crossing. You know, they're they're everywhere. In, John in Goodman again. John Goodman again in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, John John Goodman in Oh Brother, Wheezy in, in Intolerable Cruelty. I mean, you know, they 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 have this like almost like you know sado masochistic whipping beating motif that's in a lot of their movies and often it's to play up the lack of sexual potency of you know their chosen neutered intellectual you know protagonist which is why we you guys have hinted at it but the other scene that i love and which is so bound up in meaning is the barton on the dance floor you know <laughs> Barton cutting a rug, this complete abject physical spectacle. I mean, I don't know how John Turturro can do that and look <laughs> at himself in the mirror. But when he's faced by these strapping young soldiers. With like with just... like chins jizzled out of granite. That one guy's face is so yeah. square. It's like Channing Tatum and Hail Caesar, that, that whole, whole musical <laughs> number. Yeah. Reminded of. And the way he the way he leers at them, you know, my mind is my weapon. And you're like, boy, asshole. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> the insinuation yeah. that I am serving my country by being brilliant. You're just firing a gun. You know, there's this sort of like incredible arrogance to that exchange. Yeah. Uh, one assumes that Barton Fink could not uh, make it in the military. He'd be washed out immediately. Like 4F. For, oh, yeah. Um, they wouldn't even let so him. So this is his superiority complex. Of- which, gets, which, which again gets doubled by the idea that he's a Jewish entertainer. Right. In a period where historically the studios were repressing or withholding much mention of Europe or the, you know, the Polish corridor or anything. So I think his guilt is doubled even more. And that's where, again, the Coens are too smart to explain their movies and they're impatient when people try to and they should be. But the two detectives, what are their names again? They're like, uh, I, I should have this memorized. The detectives are like the Spinetti and it's a German and an Italian. Because they're, they're, they're the fascist Axis powers. The fascist Axis powers, you know, hanging around the hotel, basically asking after Barton and making all kinds of, you know, anti-Semitically charged remarks. I mean, that's the thing is they they bring the European front into Hollywood. And when you guys were talking about the movie as a mashup of all these types, everything you guys are saying is so true. I mean, it's a, it's a horror film and it's a satire and it's a bit of a noir. But I mean, it's also kind of weirdly a war film. Or 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 a kind of World War Two allegory mm-hmm. movie, and whether the Coens mean for that to be read from beginning to end as their intent, I think might be a bit much. But those scenes in the hallway with Charlie unbound, you know, with 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 him unbound, sort of taking out the Axis powers, is pretty legible. You know, there's really good writing on that stuff, and and what it may be be getting at. Well, what I like. I guess what I love so much about this movie and one of the reasons I keep coming back to it is because it's about half a dozen different things, right? When you say it's a metaphor, it's doing something, it's being metaphorical in in doing something with World War II. Yeah, I see it. It's legible. It's in the text. I can see it right there. It's about writer's block. Yeah, that's obvious. I can see that right there. It's about... um, you know, it's it's like half a dozen different things, but not all the way through one single thing. And I think that's why I find this movie so beguiling and keep coming back to it is because it's about half a dozen things at the same time and it's doing them all brilliantly. And it's it's not simple enough that you can reduce it to one. I can't believe they turned single. out in three weeks. 
simple reading. It just boggles my mind. It's so... Yeah, it's like on a whole other level. Especially with as much much planning as they do. Yeah. I think the the quote is, we kind of burped out Barton Fink. (laughs) But isn't it amazing that and not you can't skip over Hudsucker because Hudsucker is an amazing whirling, you know, edifice of, of movie making. But it's fascinating that they wouldn't really ever touch a nerve until they de annotate and simplify into Fargo, which is not to say Fargo is a simple movie. Fargo contains multitudes and is, I think, perfectly realized. But I've always thought there's an interesting structure underneath their filmography where Blood Simple, Fargo, and No Country Mm -hmm. are the three Cohen movies with no annotations. You know? They're not dependent really on references. They're not dependent on citation. They're deep films, but the depth has to do with the situation and the characters. And movies like Barton Fink and Hudsucker win them deep, abiding love and respect from a certain wing of cinephilia but have absolutely no uh, traction, for lack of a better word, with the common viewer, which is not a thing. And the second you start using phrases like that, you're playing Barton Fink's game and you deserve to be chained to a bed. You know, <laughs> but, but, but Fargo, oddly, becomes this giant nerve toucher by dispensing with all of those period specificities. Like, you don't need a scorecard to follow it. So, you know, you guys are in the, this phase of their filmography where with Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing and Hudsucker, there's so much to talk about that you have to. Kind of the same as with Lebowski or Man Who Wasn't There or Lewin Davis. But lurking right around the corner is a movie that kind of has like good <laughs> advice for them in it in Fargo, which is just like, go home and write what you know. You know, that's kind of their like weird non-pastiche movie and i just find the gap between those two movies those five years is like an eternity because you know what in 1991 i had a hard time finding people my age who liked the coens by the time fargo comes out in 96 they're heroes you know like the hero status is pretty much there and i don't think a movie like barton fink would have landed the same way because they're not anxious about what they are or what they represent they're just kind of great so I find that first phase of their career, the transition gradually from a movie like Barton Fink to Fargo, that for lack of more yeah. subtle way of saying it, everyone liked it. Mm-hmm. Is well, it's the, it's the difference between being celebrated <laughs> and popular at Cannes and being celebrated and popular at the Oscars. Right? Exactly. Ab- <laughs> ab- absolutely. Um, Marge Gunderson is sort of so confident and good at her job and lacking the, the self doubt and anxiety that Barton Fink has. I think that's what people, they want that in their movie heroes. They want them to be able to catch the bad guy. They want the, that's the, probably the most simplistic moral tale that, you know, the bad guys get caught at the end. Like that resonates so hard with like general audiences. Yeah. And Marge is the anti Barton Fink in lots of, yeah, she is self-possessed and confident and decent. And the one thing she's not is pretentious. She is the common person. Yeah. With a husband, <laughs> yeah. with a husband who's literally uh, his name is short form for normalcy. You know, Marge and <laughs> Marge, 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 Marge and Norm. You know, you can imagine the Minnesotan Barton Fink would write a little one act play about them. You know, but yeah. the but the Cohen sort of mean it more. I just I think that that incredible 
transition in their career because they were shaping up in some ways to be a spectacular footnote to American movies. And then after Fargo, they become like their own chapter or series of chapters where it's like, you cannot tell the history of American popular film without giving these guys their due. Not because the first four movies are bad, but because they're such a specialized taste, you know, Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink are not like easy sells. For sure. So. Um, I wanted to bring up one thing that I, I'm, I'm curious about. Um, I could not find evidence that wrestling pictures were ever a huge genre in the way that this movie paints them. <laughs> there, there's a couple examples, and Faulkner wrote on one of them, a film called Flesh, that John Ford directed in 1932. Uh, Wallace Beery was uh, a, a play, did play a wrestler in that. That's really that seemed like the, the the genesis of this idea. But um, I, if anyone has evidence that wrestling pictures were a larger genre than 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 this movie, um, I would like to know that. I think they're kind of faking it over top of boxing movies. Yeah. Right. Which were a slightly more popular depression era genre because of the catharsis of, 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 of punching it out. But I was just took that to also be a bit of a joke just about, uh, you know, physical spectacle in American movies and people would rather see larger than life. Uh, figures and literal violence than you know nerdy guys wrestling with their souls which is what joel and ethan are but yeah there's not like a big groundswell of popular wrestling movies in the 30s and 40s waiting to be <laughs> waiting to be discovered. i love the titles they came up with devil on a canvas blood sweat <laughs> yeah blood sweat and canvas 10 hell 10 feet square is my favorite i would watch that in a i, I would watch that in a sec I was trying to come up with a, like a contemporary uh, analog for, for Faulkner writing a wrestling picture. And I was thinking maybe like George Saunders writing a Fast and the Furious movie. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's, it's... Which would be good. Uh, Barton's given this like sort of vulgar, you know, genre picture that, that he thinks he's well above. Right. Um, so it's interesting that Faulkner has that on his, on his uh, resume that he... I like that he's given. I like that he's given this like genre picture that he thinks he's above. Like it's a B picture. It's a wrestling film. You know, you put an orphan and a dame in it, and and yet he fails the assignment so completely. Like there's a formula. Here are the tools. We're giving you, you know, the raw materials with which to make this thing, and he fails the assignment so completely because he's so full of himself and in his own head that he can't just. Which is why again. I laugh so hard at that line. We'll hear from that crazy wrestler again, where you realize that he's so lazy. He's so lazy that he Mm -hmm. just basically cuts and pastes, you know, things into his own, into his own play. I mean, I was wondering, you know, if you got not to digress into a discussion of this movie, but it does seem that Tar is a movie that, is about some of the same things Barton Fink is kind of about. Like there aren't too many movies, big conspicuous Hollywood movies that deal with that idea of like imposter syndrome within the arts and like whether being pretentious actually makes you smart. I don't know if you guys saw Tar, which I don't even love. I'm. We were I'm, just talking about like on the intro. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not the world's hugest Tar fan. I wrote about it for The Ringer, but I think it's decent. And it just seems like... A bit like Barton Fink, more that a movie is willing to make cultural references at all in 2022 mm-hmm. seems almost daring. You know, like know, 10 minutes of that movie, they talk about Schoenberg and stuff. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
that's not a superhero. So, you know, I feel like the stakes maybe for the Coens were a little low, but you got to hand it to them. I mean, they made a movie that basically required that knowledge. And if you don't have it, then the film is a pretty alienating experience. Well, and I wonder what it was like to be, again, I was, it came out in 1991. I would have been nine. So I didn't see it when it came out, but took a little while for me to see it but like you didn't have wikipedia you didn't have the internet in 1991 if you were a budding young teenage or you know in your 20s cinephile and you're watching this and it's got references to things that you would know if you didn't know that's you might not know that was william faulkner you know like how you might not know the background on the studio heads and and who they were um sort of poking fun at there like how did you figure that out did you have to go to a film critic who would spell it out for you like what kind of reading did you have to do in 1991 to figure that out if you were a young film critic you know it's so different than being um or a young film fan it's so different than being a cinephile now where you can sort of really easily get at material that will contextualize it for you like if you watch tar and you don't know what's happening in tar it's pretty easy to find pieces that will break down and spell out what's happening in tar versus barton fink in 1991 i I just remember being in the theater watching tar and the only two things that i know that her and m gopnik are talking about are m gopnik and leonard bernstein (laughs) and it's kind of setting the stage for like what's about to come like i can't believe i got two more hours uh, I'm like, and how long has this M gotten the care of you going for? <laughs> <laughs> it was just great. I, th- I think what we've been tiptoeing around is the idea of like intellectual pretentiousness. And I think what separates the Coens from, from like, uh, from, from Sorkin is the self-awareness and, and the ability to poke fun at themselves and their own anxieties. And I think I, I, I when, when sometimes I'll view a film as brilliant and then someone will say that's super pretentious. You know, I always wonder where those, those viewpoints come from. Um, I don't think, I, I think Barton Fink acknowledges the character as pretentious or acknowledges, but they tiptoe up to the line. They never, they never cross the line of being pretentious themselves, which I appreciate. I mean, they, de- they, they deserve to me about as much credit as any American filmmakers I can think of for basically saying, all right, here's our movie. You have to come up this far to it. You know, whatever line we have, we're not going to put it like behind enemy lines. We're not going to make a movie that is actively repulsive or repugnant to you, but you have to make the move up to us. And I think that um, maybe the difference between them and the guy who comes right after them kind of doing a similar thing, then I've never been able to get my head around why this is so. With Tarantino, he also didn't really like move the line. For some reason, the whole mass culture basically decided that the few things that he's obsessed with are like now what they're obsessed with. <laughs> it never fails to boggle my mind when I look at a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is largely about 60s television. Uh, not that he would make that movie, but that $300 million of ticket buyers are like, okay. Mm-hmm. you know. And there's something about the way that he's moved the goalpost Tarantino that I will never get my head around. Whereas with the Coens, I understand the small way that they move the goalposts is because their references are a little, if not arcane, kind of highbrow, right? So people like them who do love Faulkner and who love folk music and all these things, they're never going to be the absolute darlings of the multiplex, no matter how many star actors they work with. 
but they have managed to make popular and successful movies, which at the time of Barton Fink would not have seemed possible. They're like allegorizing their own remoteness and pretentiousness in that movie. And then they make something like Fargo that actually grosses a hundred million bucks. But then I think one of the reasons Fargo made that much money, unfortunately, is because it came out after Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And there's a vogue for whatever the superficial charms of like violent nihilistic hitman movie are, even though the two don't have much in common with artists. Sorry, I'm not trying to take it too far afield, but it's like, it's a fascinating thing with them because they're obviously popular enough to win Oscars and a couple of their movies have made a few hundred million dollars worldwide. But man, when Barton Fink came out, the feeling was like they were never going to even like break even again. And I don't think it's because after that they sold out though. I think they buy in. I don't think right? they sold out. They sold buy out's in. not quite the right work. Maybe broadened appeal or simplified appeal. But they, they maintained autonomy and, and yeah. an artistic vision. So that's hard to do. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you watch something like Fargo or No Country for Old Men or I don't know, whatever the other ones are that, that, that grossed a lot of money. True Grit grossed a lot of money. It's They're not any less themselves in those movies that make a lot of money right like i don't watch it and see a compromise no no not a not a not a compromise for sure but also they never disappear right even in something like intolerable cruelty which is maybe the closest thing they've ever made to like a normalish movie they don't they don't they don't totally disappear um all right so to wrap up we haven't really talked about the the woman on the beach which is the, the final scene and I the, my my take on this is that had he actually once he checks into the hotel had he actually bothered to take a walk down to the beach, <laughs> um, th- and this is something like I used to live very close to a beach, uh, Lake Michigan in Chicago. And it was very much my me to be holed up in my apartment working on something rather than like going out to the beautiful beach. I just I love that's the, that's the sort of that's the window in, into the world that he's not even curious to go explore. And and I always think about The Shining. Uh, where Jack's locked himself in in a room to write, right? But in this case, it's like all work and no play makes Barton a dull boy. Because <laughs> really, he needs he needs to go out and explore and have experiences in order to understand other people, and he refuses to do that. It's so it's so locked inside his own mind, and we can debate what the life of the mind really means. There's probably a lot of different interpretations, but. I just, I don't know, how do, you, how do you guys feel about the sort of ambiguity? Does he grow at the end of it? Does he have hope at the end of it? Is he still as confused as he was at the beginning of the movie by the end? Well, I mean, he's trapped in the, he's trapped in the postcard, right? Like, it's, it's the postcard that's sitting above his desk as he's working. It, like, replicates that imagery. He keeps repeating the ending uh, of his play. Um, you're gonna see that kid and i don't just mean a postcard and he's here he is sort of like (laughs) locked in that postcard he's imprisoned in a kind of creative way by the studio where everything he writes is going to belong to them but they're not going to produce it like i don't see that as a remotely hopeful ending yeah it's a it's 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 a trap right and i think that that symbol of the woman with the back turned there's this indifference right it's something that's within reach but is indifferent to him. And the Coens are so good with their little details. They always have this idea of dreams in their movies, you know, and the indifference of dreams to the people having them. I mean, I think about Raising Arizona and No Country for Old Men, how they have the same ending, 
You know, I mean, in a, in a, in a big way, they're the same, same ending, the idea of, and then I woke up. Right. And I, I think the idea of Barton Fink maybe is that even awake <laughs> when you're in Los Angeles, you're kind of dreaming and that's the problem. You know, you're, he's, he's never going to be able to rouse himself from that thing that he wants. Cause I think what he wants in some ways is so conventional and so boring, you know, um, he's con- conventional and boring and stereotypical and really kind of unremarkable. Um, but boy, do they have a lot of those little symbols and gimmicks in this movie. It's so built around all those mysteries, the box, the postcard, the typewriter, the whole, the noises, the wallpaper. I mean, it's just an array. So the, 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 the woman on the beach is sort of the perfect cherry on top of this all is, that. This is our original what's in the box film of the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Absol- absolutely. <laughs> oh, it's, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. It's, it's the only answer. <laughs> and on that note. On that note, yeah. <laughs> Adam, thank you for joining us. <laughs> yeah, honored. Thank you. Big fan. Thank you, Adam. For having me. I had a blast. Sneak into an R-rated movie. Let's call Bart and Fink. I can't. I told my dad I'd wait for him. Bart and Fink! Bart and Fink! Bart and Fink! The Life of the Mind is edited and produced by me, Chris Ayers. Music by Nick Shelby and Mike Brenner at CosmicAmericanMusic.com. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Cohen Brothers Pod. And on Instagram and Facebook at The Life of the Mind Pod. You can also find my designs for Coen Brothers alternative movie posters at etsy.com slash shop slash Chris Ayers Creative. <laughs>